previously on If the Walls Could Talk. Getting people to wear wires in a hospital fraud investigation is unusual. There were a significant number of recordings made. Man, you got to be careful what you say. The tapes involved this scheme to unnecessarily admit these patients to Edgewater. We all knew stuff that was going on was not right. And these patients were being tortured. We were all like, what is going on here? The following contains adult language and content. Discretion is advised. In April 2000, a Chicago man named Albert Ocaro went to Edgewater Hospital. The 42-year-old was an auto mechanic who ran his own business. He had a wife and kids, and he was their sole provider. That's FBI agent Cherry Cohn. Working with the cars up on the lift so often caused discomfort in one of his shoulders. I, I don't know that it was both, but he went to Edgewater to have that checked out. Albert went to Edgewater with shoulder pain, but he was seen by cardiologist Dr. Andrew Cabrilla. Somehow he had ended up in the hands of Dr. Cabrilla, who convinced him that he needed to rule out heart issues. Cabrilla wanted Albert to get an angiogram, an angioplasty. An angiogram uses x-rays to find blockages in the arteries. An angioplasty uses a balloon-like device to widen a blocked artery. Albert questioned why he needed these heart procedures since he had shoulder pain. But Dr. Cubria insisted, and the consequences were fatal. As attorney Bruce Paff explains. He caused a dissection of the coronary artery, which was one of the main arteries in the heart. Albert arrested shortly after the procedure. And that ultimately caused his death. Janice Lindquist was in Peter Rogan's office with Dr. Cabria when the news hit. While I was still in the office with Peter, a call came down and said that a patient had expired in the cath lab. Dr. Cabria, he was like visibly upset and then he just ran out of the office. Janice was the hospital's risk manager. As a risk manager, my responsibility is to go up and secure the records in the event that there would be a malpractice suit. And Peter was like, go. So I ran up to the lab and I said, I need those films. It was called City Angiogram Film. And I said, I need those films. And they were like, they're, they're not here. And I said, what do you mean they're not here? It was like, we searched all over for them and tried to find them. They're gone. The film from Albert Ocaro's procedure was suspiciously missing. And they never turned up. So she went back to Peter Rogan's office to share the news. So I told Peter. They're gone, and in the 20, 30 minutes it took for this all to happen, I said I believed that Dr. Cabria had taken that film and that it was probably at the bottom of the lake somewhere. And Peter clicked the button under his desk and closed his office door and screamed at me and said, don't ever say anything like that ever again. Her hunch proved to be correct. After Mr. O'Caro died, Dr. Cabria tried to get rid of any evidence that would have shown that Mr. O'Caro didn't need the procedure, including destroying the film. Dr. Cabria may have destroyed evidence, but one of the lab techs saved the day. This lab tech kept a copy of the film and turned it over to the FBI. He was one of those employees who felt strongly that some of these procedures that Dr. Cabria was performing were not necessary and was good enough to bring that information forward to us. This case was unique in so many respects. One of the ways it was unique is that the U.S. Attorney's Office hired a very good cardiologist from New York City to fly out 
and to go through Edgewater's cardiac cath lab and to look at the films of hundreds of cardiac catheterizations that Dr. Kubria had done. When the expert looked at Albert O'Carroll's film, he determined that the procedure Kubria performed was medically unnecessary and resulted in Mr. O'Carroll's death. It was medically inappropriate to do that study without first having done certain things to rule out other causes of problems. The expert questioned why Dr. Kubria didn't choose less invasive treatments. Typically, if you're working up a patient for heart disease, they'll do an on-stress test first, put them on a treadmill, or do it by drug therapy to stress the heart, see the response. If there's no undue stress, you avoid the invasive procedure. Albert didn't need the study at all. Absolutely, he did not need it. And by the time it gets done, he's dead. That's crazy. Around the time I was leaving, there were a lot more rumors that Dr. Cabrera was doing things he shouldn't have. Chris Ledger was Edgewater's social worker. He was known to be doing procedures that weren't medically necessary. Dr. Cabrera was just a very problematic individual. That's Janice Lindquist. He would wear these sweatshirts to work and they would be just covered with food stains. I actually even said to him once, if you were my doctor, and I took one look at you, I would walk right out the door. Don't you think you should put a button-down shirt on or something? He was like a drill sergeant almost. He would come on the unit and everyone would scatter because no one wanted to be yelled at. I mean, he had no problem yelling at anyone. I was scared of Dr. Cabrera. I never wanted to go near him. Laura Wasilak worked at Edgewater. I would go up on the floors and it would be like, oh, Cabrera's mad about something again. He was always yelling a lot. Amidst the yelling were whispers about Dr. Cabrera. I started hearing rumors about Cabrera performing cardiac casts when people didn't need them. I never saw him examine patients, but everybody was getting a cast. Christine Joyce was a nurse at Edgewater. The only time he would go in and talk to a patient is when they started refusing. Then he would go in and kind of, you know, do you want to drop dead? And kind of strong arm them to having the procedure done. And I think that's how we got a lot of patients to do procedures that they didn't feel necessary or didn't want, like Mr. O'Caro. You ever meet those people that make you have an uncomfortable, kind of like slimy feeling about you? He was always like that. Michelle Saygraves worked with Cubria. I not only worked with Andrew Cubria, I attended his last wedding. And that was a strange man. We had heard that Dr. Cabrera had quite an ego. Sometimes doctors are referred to as having a God complex, and that's how people tended to refer to Cabrera. Cabrera even appeared in TV commercials for Edgewater Hospital. His ads were basically him explaining how the chiropractic catheterization was needed. Dr. Doug Lim was a medical resident who worked with Dr. Cabrera. I don't recall him really treating us terribly, but I can't say he treated us with respect either. But something about Dr. Cabrera stood out. During my internship year there, my thoughts going through the process was, how's this guy, you know, getting away with all these catheterizations without any medical need or cause? When he and others spoke up. Most of us did mention this to our program director, but um, it's pretty much ignored at that time and nothing was said or done. Many called Cubria the heartless heart doctor. The running joke was Dr. Cubria was a cardiologist without a stethoscope which uh, was pretty much true. Every time I'd see him, he never had a stethoscope. I don't even know if he ever listened to anyone's heart. 
Andrew Cubria was born in Cuba and came to the United States when he was just 10 years old. He was one of thousands of Cuban children airlifted to Miami as part of the covert mission known as Operation Peter Pan. After settling in Chicago, Cubria lived just steps from Edgewater Hospital. It was a place he said he dreamed of working. He fulfilled that dream in 1979 when Dr. Maisel hired the now Dr. Cubria as staff cardiologist. So how did Cubria go from being a board-certified cardiologist to the man known as the Heartless Heart Doctor? I still remember interviewing a former employee of Edgewater, and he said, oh yeah, he used to be a good doctor, but then something happened. There were a lot of people that were very fond of him when he was there, and he was respected, but things soured quickly. Jim Ginter worked with Cubria. I don't know what else to say about him other than that his desire for success and being able to obtain great things got in the way of him being a good doctor. The only thing I can imagine, or I, I want to think, is that he was really hard up for money and was doing whatever he had to do. Perhaps he saw the road to riches being uh, more important than the Hippocratic Oath that he took. Dr. Kubria routinely butted heads with hospital management. He would yell at Roger Eamon and Peter Rogan, and often threaten to move his patients out of Edgewater. Since Kubria brought in so much money to the hospital, he had enormous leverage. He knew it, Peter knew it, and Roger knew it. It's why Kubria was able to operate with free reign. They're saying that he was doing some unnecessary procedures. Roger Eman was the hospital's vice president. You know, I heard some rumors and things like that, but I find that a little bit hard to believe. Let me just tell you why. I worked in healthcare for 30 years. And when you're up doing a cardiac catheterization, you're not by yourself. You got scrub nurses, you got anesthesiologists, you got all these people in there, okay? They see the results. I mean, I don't see how you could do that. It's almost impossible. These are too many witnesses. And so I, I don't know if it's ever true or not, but that's what he said. He wasn't a good doctor. Let's just face it. He wasn't a good doctor. He wasn't invested in his patients. He wasn't concerned about his patients. But I never thought he would actually do things to kill patients. In the 1950s and 60s, Edgewater Hospital was one of the leading medical institutions for heart health. Along with developing a type of open-heart surgery and a blood clot drug, Edgewater created the first coronary care unit, which was a dedicated ambulance for patients having a heart attack. But by the 1990s, Edgewater doctors were performing invasive heart procedures on patients that didn't need them. One such procedure was a cardiac catheterization. It's a serious procedure. That's journalist Bruce Japson. It's done when someone maybe has chest pains or heart attack, but you just don't do it on a vast number of patients. A cardiac cath is an invasive procedure where a long, thin tube is inserted in an artery or vein in your groin, neck, or arm, and then gets threaded through your blood vessels to your heart. Any cardiologist that's doing lots and lots of catheterizations, you want to make sure that they're doing them on patients that need to have them. As for Edgewater's Dr. Cabrilla, Dr. Cabrillo was a cardiologist, and he was doing unnecessary heart catheterizations on a lot of people who didn't need it. All of this 
was a recipe for disaster. You want to make sure that if something goes wrong, that the hospital has the ability to also do open-heart surgery. I don't recall Edgewater doing open-heart surgeries. Maybe they did, but they certainly were not known as a place that did a lot of open-heart surgeries. Edgewater was not a specialty hospital, and neither was Cabrilla. Fearing that others could be harmed, FBI agent Sherry Kuhn ramped up her investigation. I met with Dr. Cabrilla in an undercover capacity. I was posing as someone who was doing research on cardiac cats. The FBI wanted to confirm that Cabrilla fully understood what he was doing, so that if they charged him, he couldn't use the excuse that he lacked proper training. We ended up meeting and he described for me how the procedure is performed and generally you know, what condition a patient had to be in before they would take that next step for, for such an invasive procedure. He gave the FBI the information they were looking for, that he didn't practice what he preached. This meeting became important later because the government hired an expert cardiologist to review Cabrilla's patient files and the procedures that he performed so that we could know whether they were necessary. That expert the government hired to review Cabrilla's records determined that the vast majority of Cabrilla's procedures were not necessary. They were concerned about what they saw. And there was more. In a scathing report, the expert wrote, Dr. Cabrilla is endangering the lives of patients under his care. The continued practice of medicine by Dr. Cabrilla presents an immediate danger to the safety of the public. Journalist Monica Ryda covered the story. This doctor had performed hundreds of the procedures. So it wasn't, you know, they did 12 of them. They did this on hundreds of patients who didn't need it. Hundreds. And all of this was done just so they could try to line the pockets of the hospital. The reason Cabrilla was performing all these heart procedures was money. The big thing is that certain procedures are going to result in higher payments. If an elderly person comes into the hospital and they've got chest pains and they just need some aspirin, that's not going to be something you're going to get a lot of money and a reimbursement on that claim for. But if you misdiagnose them and say you need open heart surgery, you're going to get a significantly larger reimbursement and payment. And that's exactly what happened at Edgewater. Everything that happened at Edgewater was kind of shuffled under the rug. Chris Ledger worked at Edgewater. And I think that was the way a lot of people looked at Dr. Cabrillo. Everybody heard the rumors, but nobody wanted to believe it. It was never in the newspaper. It was never talked about on the news. In my mind, it was kind of a well-known thing, but you almost didn't want to believe it. But that all changed. In 2001, a Chicago TV station aired a story about a patient of Dr. Kubria's. This patient suffered a heart attack as a result of an unnecessary procedure Kubria performed on her. In an emotional TV interview from her hospital bed, the woman said it felt like someone was tearing open her chest. She tearfully looked into the camera and said, I just can't believe this would happen. None of the agencies did their job. I think with Edgewater, it seemed like every month there was evidence that we were obtaining that you just didn't think it, it could get any worse. But it did. It was one other death from an unnecessary catheterization. 
was a person who had no heirs, no family. Attorney Bruce Paff couldn't believe what was happening at the hands of Dr. Kubria. You know, in the world of medical malpractice cases, this is clearly in the top five of my 40 years experience of outrageous things. Outrageous. Just should never have happened. That's now two deaths at the hands of Dr. Cabrilla, which upset fellow Cuban Dr. Manulet. You have to take care of your patient. You have to give your life for your patient. And let me tell you, Cabrilla killed two persons just for an angiogram and an angioplasty. I mean, give me a break. With eight cardiologists on staff at Edgewater Hospital, Dr. Cubria wasn't the only one the feds were investigating. Edgewater Hospital's Dr. Andrew Cabria came to the United States as a part of a covert program called Operation Peter Pan. He was one of the 14,000 children airlifted from Cuba to Miami in the 1960s. We'll talk more about that program and learn more about Dr. Cubria in this week's Second Opinion episode on Patreon. For just $10 a month, you can unlock bonus content like that on our Patreon page. Just go to patreon.com slash if the walls could talk podcast. The March 1999 edition of Edgewater Hospital's employee newsletter featured an article thanking everyone for their help shoveling out the biggest snowstorm in 30 years. Edgewater's Dr. Saram, who went by Dr. Chris, had a private practice at Edgewater, but also saw patients through the hospital. Well, that snowstorm that crippled Chicago didn't stop Dr. Chris. He treated 49 patients during that blizzard. At least, that's what he claimed. According to his records, Dr. Chris worked 365 days in both 1997 and 98. He even claimed to treat 187 patients while making 131 house calls during one day. He documented that he worked more than 24 hours on 150 different occasions. And miraculously, he also claimed to treat 32 patients who were actually dead. Although he wanted to be called Dr. Chris, you could also call him Jesus Christ for his ability to be everywhere. The government later charged Dr. Chris and alleged that he fraudulently obtained at least $1.2 million in Medicare payments. This is actual courtroom audio of a group of judges and Dr. Chris's lawyer. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming of massive, massive fraud. These hours alone that he claims to have worked and these, you know, multiple visits that he made in the snow. During a snowstorm, when no <laughs> I mean, traffic ridiculous. could move in Chicago. <laughs> Dr. Chris's lawyer said he was a good cardiologist, but a terrible bookkeeper. Your Honor, that was one, it's, one. It is absurd. It's a hoot. But Dr. Chris wasn't just treating an inordinate amount of patients. The Fed said he was also performing unnecessary cardiac caths. The same expert who reviewed Dr. Kubria's records looked through Dr. Chris's records and labeled Dr. Chris a mortal threat. But Dr. Chris's lawyer said the government had cherry-picked data because Dr. Chris didn't want to cooperate in their other investigations. This case would drag on for years, and we'll cover what ultimately happened in a later episode. But at that time, Edgewater not only had Dr. Kubria, who was labeled an immediate danger to the public, but also had Dr. Chris, who was called a mortal threat. For most nurses working at Edgewater in the 1990s and early 2000s, they saw things that were illegal, unethical, or just downright wrong, like Mary DeFrancesco, who was an x-ray tech. And I went up to do a portable, but the patient actually had died. 
But Gabriel told me to go ahead and take the chest x-rays to charge this guy's insurance. That's just awful. We heard stories about doing tests on people who died from more than one person. This doctor calls up my chief resident and said, that I'm refusing to send this patient to the CT scan. And I go, doctor, this guy's dead. I mean, I can't send a dead guy to CT. She said, don't say anything more. I know who you're talking about. Don't say anything more. I'm done. You don't believe that it's actually gone down this path. That's Kathy Colombo. There were just sketchy things going on, and it just got to be too odd. I saw a lot of bad stuff there. Denise King's boss told her something that shocked her. She said, you have to understand who our patient population is. Standards of practice don't always apply here. And I'm like, what? FBI agent Sherry Kuhn spent six months at Edgewater interviewing hospital employees. They clearly felt that there was something happening at the hospital that shouldn't be. I would sit down with these employees and I felt that they were really happy that something was being done. I think a lot of times people don't realize that there was a really good period of years where patients got really good care there, and it was like the premier place to go. We saw some stuff that we thought was wrong from people like Dr. Cabrini and stuff, but we also did good work there too. 99% of the staff, they were really good people who put their patients first during those weird years. There were good nurses there. There were good doctors there. It was like a family. And it's sad that Edgewater has a bad name because you say you work there and people are like, oh, you worked there. You have to understand, there was a lot of good that still went on there. One by one, all the good Edgewater Hospital nurses you've heard in this podcast had enough. A lot of the nurses, the nurse managers started leaving once they got wind of what was going on. So my mom called me and she was like, um, some FBI agent called asking for your phone number. So this happened to dozens of former Edgewater employees and patients. And we'll share what they were thinking and why one person actually hung up on the FBI on this week's Second Opinion episode on Patreon. For just $10 a month, you can unlock bonus content like that on our Patreon page. Just go to patreon.com slash if the walls could talk podcast. As investigations swirled around Edgewater Hospital in the late 1990s, a new chief executive replaced Peter Rogan. She was another longtime colleague of Peter's. Despite that, Peter remained heavily involved with the hospital. There were talks about the FBI coming in and talking to people. Chris Ledger was Edgewater's social worker. There was the feeling that something was going to happen. The bottom started to fall out at Edgewater in 1999 when the federal government charged Edgewater Hospital in an upcoding scheme. This meant the hospital billed Medicare and Medicaid for more complex and more costly treatments. Edgewater didn't admit any wrongdoing, but paid out just over a million dollars to avoid a federal lawsuit. In the midst of all these federal investigations, doctors wearing wires and now paying to head off a federal lawsuit, Edgewater Hospital pulled yet another rabbit from under its hat. It purchased another hospital. Journalist Bruce Japson covered the story. When a press release came across an address to me that Edgewater, which I knew was under a federal investigation, was going to buy Grant Hospital. Grant was another struggling Chicago hospital. I thought, whoa, 
this is going to get really interesting here. As Peter Rogan purchased Grant Hospital, the FBI visited the home of Edgewater's number two guy, Roger Eamon. I had a couple agents visit me at my home unbeknownst. They got there before I did. I was on my way home. Much like they did with the others, the FBI showed up with secretly recorded conversations of Roger Eamon discussing the fraud scheme. I was extremely concerned about these tape recordings that the government had. Attorney Dave Stetler represented the hospital. He had made all sorts of statements about, we don't really collect copay, but we pretend like we do. And if we really collected copay, we'd be losing patients, which of course is a violation of the anti-kickback statute. So I called Eamon. I heard what he had to say. He was pretty much a dead duck from the beginning. And Eamon impressed me as a pretty decent guy, but exceedingly naive. Stetler's advice to Roger was to lawyer up. And with that, the investigation took off, and there were just a mind-numbing menu of fraud issues the hospital was facing. It's possible that the FBI made the same deal with Roger that they made with the others. You've probably seen enough TV crime shows to know that if you want to get to the number one guy, you have to pinch the number two guy. In this case, if the feds wanted to get to Peter Rogan, they'd need to flip Roger Eamon. I'm sure they went to see Roger Eamon to flip him to get him to make tapes on people, including Peter. So if you're Peter Rogan and you're worried that Roger Eamon might be wearing a recording device, well, you do what the old school mobsters did and you meet with Roger at a place where you don't wear clothes. Next time on If the Walls Could Talk. We knew there was trouble, but we didn't know that the hospital was going to close. It had been misused by management. The ripples that went through the community was devastating. It wasn't something that we anticipated. Edgewater ultimately closed because they chose to defraud the government. Learn more on the website, ifthewallscouldtalkpodcast.com. Music in this episode comes from the YouTube Audio Library. Breathing Down My Neck by Alex Kashkin, Criminal Pulse by Lynn Music, Tension Pulse by Bjorn Lynn, and Suspended in a Dream by Dmitry Belichenko are all used under license through NeoSounds. This episode was written by Todd Gans. If the Walls Could Talk podcast is produced by Buckletown Productions, LLC. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.